Well, welcome everyone uh, to uh, session three entitled Dividing Between Spirit and Soul. Now, we've already talked about uh, what's contained in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 13 and 14, that we need milk as we begin our spiritual growth. But if we continue and only drink milk, we're not going to grow. We have to grow into things of God, and it's actually by reason of use that we have our senses exercised to discern both good and evil. As we grow into full age, we get solid food. We need to grow up. Uh, we need to have milk to begin with, but we don't need to stay there. And too much of Christianity is at the milk stage. And we need to move on. We need to have milk when we need it. We need to have meat when we need it. And we need to have steaks, <laughs> solid steaks when we need that too. So it's a process. In all of Christianity, it's a process. And the process to spiritual maturity is that we must not only be aware of what we have come out of, but also where we're going. The goal we have is to dig, to beg, and to multiply is for our own life's calling. If we do not have a vision for this, we will not grow. If our vision is too small, it will not be worth attaining. And if we get discouraged by not attaining too quickly, we were weak and had a vision that was too small. In the parable of the sower and the seed, Jesus described this as those that had no root in themselves. Those that get offended because they're not allowed to, to enter into something that they believe they're called to, uh, they feel like they're held back because they're not allowed into it soon enough. In reality, their vision was too small. Because if they truly had a vision, they wouldn't expect to move into it that quickly. Anything worth having is worth working for and worth working into. It's by reason of use that we have our senses exercised and our spiritual senses exercised. In Proverbs 20, 21, it says that an inheritance may be gotten hastily at the beginning, but the end of it shall not be blessed. If we want to have the inheritance in a spiritual sense, a blessed inheritance, it's not going to be rushed. Look at how much time God has invested in this whole process. Because the end is always before Him. He sees the glory. And if we'll have that hope and see before us, clearly we'll be able to stay on track. But if we don't have a clear vision of where we're going, we can't go towards that. We won't go towards that. And if we get offended because we're not attaining it fast enough, it's probably because our vision was too small. There's a powerful truth. Anything worth attaining is worth being faithful to receive. Now, again, we looked at the parable in Luke 16 of the unjust steward. And I want to look at that process again with you. First he said, I cannot dig. Now to dig is manual labor. In 2 Timothy 2.15 it says to be diligent to present yourself approved before God. To be diligent is to put effort into what you're doing. One translation says to study, but it's to work. To work, to be diligent, to show yourself approved under God. To be approved is to be tested and proven. 
That's to dig. We need to put some effort into the process. If we never put any effort into the process, we won't grow. Hebrews 4, 11 and 12, we should be diligent to enter His rest. One translation says, to labor to enter into His rest. So there's work involved. I like that, because that's a paradox. To labor to enter into rest. <laughs> there's a proverb that says, the sleep of a working man is sweet. But in the Spirit, if we labor to enter into that supernatural rest, we put effort into entering that place of God's rest. In that Sabbath rest, God does the work for us. So we need to put effort into attaining that place, coming into that place. Lest anyone fall, according to the same example of disobedience, for the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So we need to be diligent. We need to work. We need to labor to show ourselves approved unto God, to labor to enter into the rest of God, and to have an understanding of that sword and how to use that sword, which is able to divide and to cut asunder even between the soul and the spirit. And in our walk as Christians, if we're going to mature, we're going to have to have our senses exercised so that we can discern between good and evil. We have to be able to discern between spirit and soul. Now, the next thing he said was, I cannot beg. Now, he had dug before and he had begged before. And he knew now, after going through there, that that wasn't going to help him in his present situation where the master was going to call him into account for everything he'd done. Now in Luke 18, Jesus gives this story. And he spoke a parable to them, beginning in verse 9, that of men that trusted in themselves and that they were righteous and that they looked down on others. Basically, he was given the parable showing that some people have their own self-righteousness and therefore they don't think they need God's help. They feel like they're going to get God's blessings because of how good they have become. And he gives the parable and tells the story about the Pharisee and the tax collector that came. And in verse 11, the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector here. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I possess. Now, all those things are good, but here's the poor little lowly tax collector. He stood afar off. And he would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. <laughs> we know that one thing is sure, and it's promised in scriptures that everyone is going to be humbled eventually. Some choose to humble themselves and receive grace thereby. Others choose to exalt themselves. They will be humbled and they'll receive judgment thereby. But nevertheless, we're all going to eventually end up in a humbled place. Now, the next stage was to multiply himself through others. He multiplied good through others. Now, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12 the calling of the fivefold ministry is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying, for the building up 
of the body of Christ. To equip is to perfect. It's to thoroughly furnish, as we saw in 2 Timothy 3.17. It's to be perfected. We're being perfected. None of us is going to be perfect until we are resurrected. Until the Lord changes us, we're not going to be perfect. However, if we're going to be disciples of the Lord Jesus, we have to be perfected. That's the word to be equipped. So as we're being equipped, we are in reality being perfected into the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're being molded into His likeness. We're, we're beginning to think and act like Him. He's beginning to find it able that He can work through us. And then as we go out in obedience, the Lord Jesus is manifesting His life and His ministry through our thoughts, words, and actions. To edify means to build up, as in building a house. So to be equipped and to edify, we are building up that house that God is putting together, fitly framing together a house that He will dwell in. Not made with human hands, but made as each member is built together in love. Now, if we have not learned to dig and to beg, we have no means by which we may equip others. We need to grow through these processes. We need to learn to put effort into our Christianity. But then we also have to come to a place where we realize there's a limit to what we can attain for ourselves, even with God's help. So we come to that place and we say, Lord, I've done everything I can. It's still not enough. And we begin to beg Him. Lord, you help me. You do it. Lord, I beseech you. I, I can't even look at you, Lord. I'm a sinner. Give me mercy, Lord. And we come to that place. But if we stay at the first one, it's all our own works. And we can't mature. If we come to the second level, where all we do is beg, but we never really move into the next level, which is to take what we've received and to hand it out to others and to begin to multiply the grace of God by the law of the Spirit through others' lives. So we need to go through each one of these steps in the process. We need to not stop at any, but on the other hand, we can't jump over any of them. That steward was a steward because he'd been through the process. He first showed himself worthy as a worker. He showed himself worthy uh, to be able to beg and to bring in through thought. I'm talking about in a, in a work sense. He would think things through. And he would be able to see things so that it could be done without that labor. But then he passed that and went into a place of stewardship where he began to multiply the work being done through others. In a spiritual sense, we're each called to do this. To work. To labor in the things of God. But then to somehow be a mediator between the things on earth and the things in heaven, to bring God's intervention into what's going on. But then, to not be so spiritual that we're no earthly good, but to go to the next level, which is to take what we've been given and the things that we've learned and to pass them on to others in order to multiply the grace of God through many others on the earth. Now, there's a, another little example I might give you too because as we grow in the things of God, God wants us to grow up and He wants us to prosper in all that we do. In 3 John 2, it says, Beloved, I want above all things 
that you would prosper and be in health even as your soul prospers. So God wants us to prosper, and He can take us to a place where great prosperity comes through us. And I see the same systems working in prosperity through Scripture as we see here, to work, to beg, and to multiply. At the first level, we need to understand, if we're not willing to work, then we really don't deserve to be blessed. Now, the Scripture says that if anyone will not work, neither should they eat. It doesn't say if anyone cannot work. But it says if they refuse, then they should not. So there is a level of work. And we need to learn to do that. There's a satisfaction that comes with labor, with our hands. It says in Ephesians that we should labor so that we have to give to them that has a need. God will supply our need. But we still need to work in order to have to give. Now that's one level. There's a satisfaction that comes there. But if we stay at that level, really, we can stagnate. And there's whole groups of the population that are at that level. They say, well, hey, I may not have much, but I've, I've worked honestly for it. I've, everything I have, I've got from my own labor. And yet they're working poor, you see. So that's a process we need to come through but not stay at. We need to learn to labor honestly, but there's another level, to beg. In a sense, I think of the farmer who goes out and labors and plants the seed, but then he stops. Once it's planted and once everything's done, then he knows that if he's done it right, it's going to grow just through the process that God has put in motion in the beginning of growth. He planted the seed. And now as it gets water, as it gets warmth, as it gets light, it's going to grow. And so planting and harvesting, it's a process of sowing and reaping, very scriptural. And every Christian needs to be able, whether you're a farmer or not, to understand that that system works for us as we plant. Then we beg the Lord for the rains. We beg the Lord for the right temperature. We beg the Lord to bring the sun at the proper time, you see? We did our labor, but we realize even with our labor, if we don't get the intervention of God, we're not going to have the harvest that we want. But with His intervention, we can have a hundredfold, seventyfold, thirtyfold, whatever our faith is that we can bring that intervention in. We seek the Lord like that, and it brings us to a higher level of prosperity. But there's another level, and that is those that are able to almost uh, have the mindset of creating wealth. They can look at a situation and they can look at it until they see how are we going to be able to make a decision that's going to bring something into existence that otherwise wouldn't be in existence. Like that steward did. He looked at the situation. He said, there's all those people out there that owe my master. Not a one of them is able to bring in what they owe him. But what I'll do is I'll have them bring in 50% or 80%. They'll be happy and my master's going to get something whereas he wouldn't have gotten anything if if we tried to hold him to the 100%. And he was able to bring in, almost to create something that wasn't there, but it was potential. But he had to think of that. And that's a higher level. You can look at something and ask the Lord and get a revelation, get an insight that taking an action, it multiplies the prosperity. So there, even in light of prosperity, as we grow in the things of God, there are different levels that we can move into. We should understand that as disciples growing into the stewardship, we will bring more into the kingdom as we understand these principles. 
Well, we need to learn by digging and begging so that we have something to give to others to equip them so that we multiply ourselves. So we bring them into a place of first labor and then to seek the Lord and then to multiply themselves through others. In Luke 16, verse 4, he says, I have resolved what to do, that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. See, he was looking forward. Even though he, he realized there was some potential that he could be put out of the stewardship, he still kept his integrity. He didn't do anything dishonest. There had been a, an accusation against him. And I believe that that steward is representative of all our lives. We're all called to stewardship. And none of us is going to live up to the standard that Jesus Christ set for us. And yet, we can still come through it with the same blessings that this steward received. In verse 8, the master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly, which is the word wisely or prudently. And it says, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. In other words, Jesus was saying, the sons of this world understand these principles sometimes better than the children of God. They understand you've got to go through the process, but you can't stay at one place. You've got to move on. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves of the unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, they may receive you into the, an everlasting home. One thing we need to understand is that we're all going to fail. In other words, what he's saying is not that you're going to fail in trying to do well. We, we do that also. But what he's saying is there's going to come a time when this body's going to fail you, and if the Lord tarries, you're going to die. There's going to come a time when we're going to be done with the work in this body. And he's saying here, make friends. Use your money directly is what he's saying. Use your money wisely. But it's also inferred. Your time, your effort, the things you do on earth, do it wisely with the attitude towards the end. Like that unjust steward said, when I'm put out of the stewardship, when an end comes to this place where I'm functioning right now. We need to understand we're in this body for a time. And while we're here, we have to have our eyes on eternity. You may be the richest person in the world, but if you don't have your eyes on eternity, you're really a fool. However, if we have our eyes on eternity and we are making our choices based on eternity rather than the temporal, then we can never be called a fool in the house of God. Because everything we're doing is towards that eternal end. Sometimes the Lord calls us to do things that appear foolish. But if they're obedience to Him, they're never foolish in His kingdom. And they'll always bring about a reward. So as we make friends of the mammon of unrighteousness, make friends of the things that we have before us on earth, the processes that we involve ourselves in, the work that we find to do with our hand, we make friends by utilizing those things for kingdom purposes. And then it says that they will receive us into an everlasting home when we fail. What's that saying is that as we come in to our everlasting place, there's going to be a reception line made up of all those people whose lives we touched directly or indirectly by the choices we made. You don't want to come in there and have nobody waiting for you. You don't want to walk up there and have everybody standing there just watching. 
You want to hear the applause. You want to hear the gratefulness of people whose lives you have touched. And obviously our lives touch more than we know in this life, but in that life there'll be a just reward. Because it's like a a stone being thrown into the pond. The ripples go out. And we receive rewards for all the good that is done by what we chose to do in this life. Even things that we're not aware of. But God is a just judge. And He'll be sure that everyone whose lives we touch will be in that receiving line. Amen. Praise God. Well, He says, He who is faithful in verse 10, in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in that which is least is also unjust in that which is much. What's the least and what's the much? The least is the things of this world, the temporal things. The much is the things of eternity, the spiritual things. You can say all you want that you're spiritual, but if you don't have the physical together, you're only fooling yourself. I like to give the example of tithing and giving. As I reach here into my pocket and I take out my wallet, it was some labor involved or some effort involved, a little bit of work. In other words, physical effort. I reached in, I took it out. Now I have to open it, and I open it up, and I take out some money. And I go ahead and put it in the offering. It's not any horrible physical effort. Most anybody could do it. However, many people never get to doing it because even though physically it's easy, In their mind, they can't come around to doing it. And many of the things that the Lord asks us to do in the Spirit, we never get around to it. Physically, it might be simple. It doesn't take a lot of talent to reach in your pocket, but it takes that struggle in your mind. It takes a little discipline. We have to labor. We have to dig at first. Sometimes we have to ask the Lord to remind us. That's the begging part. But if we'll do it, we're multiplying ourselves. We come to a place of wisdom. I think that tithing itself and giving itself really is in that second category. We come to, first we labor so we have something to give, but then we come to a place where we're, we want to do it by the process. We're sowing so we can reap. You can't reap before you sow. So in that second process of begging, we're going to put something in there, but then we're going to let the rains come. We're going to let the, Him open up the windows of heaven that there's not room enough to receive it. That's that second Level, But there's a, another level, whereas when it comes back, when it's manifested back, to take it and do supernaturally what uh, others would only try to do in a, in a physical sense, to do in a supernatural sense with what the Lord gives back. To raise our mindset up, that as we give, it's not only to receive back a physical blessing, but to move into a spiritual blessing. That as the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, that now God is able to make all grace abound towards you that you always having all sufficiency in all things may abound to every good work. That's a higher level than just having a few things on the shelf. You see, moving into that multiplication of blessings by the law of the Spirit. Well, if we're faithful in those things that are basic, the things that are carnal, we've got to bring those into subjection. Then we'll be able to be faithful in that which is much, which is the things of the king and His purposes, that He can trust us with His things. Therefore, if you have not been faithful and unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust true riches? 
not God. And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you that which is your own? Remember, the context is the steward working for the master. We, in our discipleship, will be put in positions of service to other men and women of God. If we can't be faithful with what is another man's, God will never entrust us with our own ministry. So many people in the body of Christ today are frustrated because they can't enter into their ministry. The doors keep closing. Sometimes it's God that's closing those doors because they've never submitted themselves to a faithful servanthood into another man's ministry to the point that they've been proven faithful that then they can be released in their own. It's a spiritual principle. It's God that's withstanding us many times for our own good. In verse 13, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. However, what he's saying here is to cause mammon to come into the service of God. Proverbs 16.3 I think of which says, Commit your works to the Lord and your thoughts will be established. (laughs) Well, this principle I think is very important that we see in Matthew chapter 6. And it says, Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now he's speaking in a spiritual sense. He's saying we need to have our treasure in eternity. Now I know the same principle works on earth. In other words, we're sowing into a particular place because we're expecting to reap from that place. And that's all right. That's a principle. But he's saying to make sure you're doing it out of obedience to God so that you have treasures laid up in heaven. And of course, it's a figure of speech here and an Orientalism in in that it's saying we want treasures in heaven and those treasures that it's speaking about here are our thoughts. In other words, verse 21 says, For your treasure is, there will your heart be also. In other words, where your thoughts are, there will your heart be also. Where your thoughts are, obviously you're going to sow into that, even in a financial sense. But in a deeper sense, we're talking about our thoughts. What is it that we're after? Where is it that we really want our reward? What is it that we're thinking about? Moth. Are you really worried about moths? Just get some mothballs. <laughs> what it's talking about there is fear. Rust? You need more than WD-40 in a spiritual sense because what it's talking about, there's worries. And when it talks about where those things corrupt, corrode, it's talking that they, they breed, they increase. So we want to lay up our treasures in heaven. We want to have our thoughts on things above so that we don't have fear and worry corrupting the things that we're doing in our lives. Are we going to be tempted with fear? Certainly. Are we going to be tempted with worry? Of course. But if we don't give in to those things, it's unethical to worry about things that are beyond our control. But what we can do, we need to do. And the other things we need to take action by begging the Lord to take action on. And what we have been given, we need to not bury those talents, but we need to multiply them by investing in others. And we'll be given great reward both now and later. And our heart will be on the things above where our treasure is. 
and our thoughts will be established. And he says in verse 33, But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all the things, all these things, will be added unto you. We have to have the right order. Seek first the kingdom of God. Seek His righteousness. There's got to be an order. Does that mean we don't need to eat? Does that mean we don't need to have a livelihood? No, but we have to have our, our act in order. Our priorities have to be in line. Seeking first God. Sometimes we may come to a point where we have to make a decision of God or our sustenance. Choose God. Seek first God. And all those other things will be added to us. The gospel is the news that the kingdom is presently available. And discipleship is the quest to be good citizens in the kingdom. We'll never be disciples if we don't have our thoughts in that kingdom. If we're not seeking first that kingdom, we won't put the effort in to disciple our lives to becoming good citizens in His kingdom. As sons of the Lord Jesus Christ, we set aside the privilege of eternal life to learn citizenship as a servant. And as we become a steward, we are positioned for adoption by God the Father. Our relationship with the Son is not based upon our work, but upon His works. Our relationship to the Father, though, is based upon what we do with the Son's accomplishments. What we allow the Son to accomplish through us. As we look in Scripture, we see in Christ, and we understand that it's speaking either in light of covenant or in light of fellowship. And we see Christ in which is speaking in light of salvation and the new birth. When the dead in Christ shall rise, it's speaking about those that, are, that died in the covenant with Him. When it talks about us being in Christ, it's talking about those of us that are in fellowship with His will. When it talks about Christ in us, it talks about the seed of God that's in us, that Christ in us. If we are to rightly divide the word, we must learn to properly cut or properly divide the word as finely as to be able to discern between spirit and soul. I was thinking in light of this, in light of a pie, or in light of a cake, or some, some type of food, and, I, and many times I, I'll cut it and I'll say, now I get the big half. <laughs> in reality, if it was cut correctly, there is no big half, because they can't be halved if one side is bigger than the other, right? And so if we're going to rightly divide it, the half has to be exactly the same if it's cut in halves. So when it comes to the scriptures, we, we need to cut so finely that there's no difference between the cuts. That we cut where God says we divide between soul and spirit. And there's no leftover soul in the spiritual realm. And there's no leftover spirit in the soul side. That we want to cut it correctly so that we can understand deeply what the Word of God says. In 1 John 1.8, it says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Now, I want you to understand as we look here in 1 John that we're going to begin to see how to divide the Scripture, and specifically here in light of spirit and of soul. So it says, We're deceiving ourselves if we say we have no sin. Can you agree with that? We all know we're sinners. That's how we came to 
recognized the need for the Lord Jesus Christ and His saving grace. We admitted we were a sinner, and we said, Lord, have be merciful upon me, a sinner, and He saved us. We have no argument with that. Well, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if, verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. In reality, we, we prove our own selves to be liars. <laughs> because we're sinners and we continue to sin. We try not to, and we do better, and hopefully it's longer and longer period between sins. But we still sometimes sin. And we can go back and we can receive forgiveness by confessing those sins. Well, he says in, in chapter 2, verse 1, My little children, these things I write unto you so that you may not sin. In other words, I'm, he's saying I'm trying to help you so that you won't sin as often. And if you do sin, he says, that Jesus is a payment, a propitiation for our sins and for anyone in the whole world that will receive it. Verse 3, For by this we know, which is the word gnosko, that we know, which is the word gnosko, Him, if we keep His commandments. In other words, the word gnosko means to have more perfect knowledge. It doesn't mean just to have a, a head knowledge, but it means to have an intimate knowledge, a personal, experiential knowledge of whatever it is being discussed. He says, Therefore, we know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. We also can know, because of what the Scripture says, that if you say you love Him and don't keep His commandments, then we know you're not telling us the truth. Because if you do keep His commandments, you're loving Him. And if you don't keep His commandments, you're not loving Him. It's as simple as that. Well, he who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. Okay, in him is fellowship. In him is obedience. In him is walking in the covenant. By this we know that we are in him because we're keeping his commandments. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk as he walked. <laughs> if we're saying we abide in Jesus, then it says we should walk as Jesus walked. That's a humbling thing when you think about that. God gives grace to the humble. There's a humbling thing right there. To know that if we abide in him, we can walk like Jesus. Now there's something to attain. We have room to grow, don't we? Just the fact of trying to walk like that is a humbling experience. And if we will endeavor to do that, I guarantee you God is going to give us grace because He gives grace to the humble. Well, let's see. Let's look at uh, verse 9. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light and, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness, and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. We want to abide in the light, don't we? It'll be a humbling experience, but it'll be a glorious experience too, because we'll walk more and more like him. We'll be in him, even as he has chosen to be in us. We'll begin to keep his commandments, because we're becoming to know him greater and greater, and more intimately. Verse 
32 of John chapter 8 says, And you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. That's the word gnosko. To experientially know the truth. Who is Jesus? Not a concept, but a person. And that person, Jesus, will make us free as we come to know Him. That's what we're seeing here in this process shown forth in 1 John. Now, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 9, it says, Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin, because he's been born of God. Now, wait a minute. We just got done reading that if we say we don't sin, we're a liar, and the truth is not in us. We just got done reading that if we say we don't sin, we're deceiving ourselves. We all agreed with that. But here we read, by the same author... In the same book, in the next chapter, whoever's born of God cannot sin. Now we have what looks to be a contradiction. Do you think John wrote the first part of that and then forgot what he wrote when he wrote this? There are those, and I've talked to people who believe, as Christians, that they no longer sin. And if you admit to them that you still sin, then you're not saved their mind, you're not born again yet. Because it says here that you cannot sin if you're a Christian. Now, I would have to tell you, my experience has been with those that have that doctrine, that they are deceived. <laughs> and the reason that they're deceived is because they have not learned to rightly divide the Scripture. And what we want to do right now is we want to rightly divide what's going on here. Because all Scripture is but given by inspiration of God. And it's useful for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, which is instruction in righteousness. And so we want to understand Scripture, and we want to be able to divide it so finely that we can see these apparent contradictions cannot be contradictions, because there's one author, and it's God. Now here you have one writer, John, being inspired by the Holy Spirit, and apparently contradicts himself just from one chapter to the next. If we can understand in one book that there's no contradictions, we'll be in a better place to understand that between books, apparent contradictions can also be explained. Because there's only one author. So let's look at this a little closer. Whoever is born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Now what part of us is born of God? It's the Spirit of God in us, isn't it? Christ has been born into us. So Christ in us is our salvation. It's our eternal life. Now back earlier we read that we would be in Him. In chapter 2, verse 5, when we are in Him and abiding in Him. So you, can you see the difference? In the first part, when it said we do sin, it's in light of our walk in Him. Now in this section it says we do not sin, it's in light of him in us. So when we divide the scriptures in light of spirit and soul, and we divide it so finely and minutely, then we begin to see that maybe there isn't a contradiction. It just appears to be on the surface. 1 John chapter 5, verse 18. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin. You see, what is born of God? It's the seed of God that's in us. So the seed of God that's in us cannot sin, even though we in our soul can go out and sin. And we uh, that are called to be in Christ 
can remove ourselves from that place of fellowship. And when we do, we need to repent, receive forgiveness, and come back into the place of grace, which is in fellowship, which is to abide in Him. However, He is always abiding in us. So there is no sin in His Spirit that's in us, even though we may go out and sin and need to repent. If we understand the difference, then we'll see there's no contradiction. Colossians chapter 1, verse 27 says, To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of the mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. If Christ hadn't come in you, there'd be very little hope for, for really walking in glory. But because He's in us, we have a hope that we're going to walk in glory, that we're going to receive the glory of the, the mystery and the grace of the mystery and the inheritance that comes to His people. To be joint heirs with Christ. Because Christ is in us, we have an opportunity to get back in Christ when we remove ourselves from the fellowship with Him. 1 Peter 1.23 says, Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but, as, but of incorruptible, through the Word of God, which lives and abides forever. We want to have our thoughts on things above, where moth and rust does not corrupt, right? However, if we have our thoughts on things on the earth, there is a corruption. So in the, in the, in the, the, the choices we make in our soul, in our mind, we have a choice of incorruptible or corruptible. But in the spirit that he has given us, we are born again of incorruptible seed. It can't corrupt because it's his spirit. No matter what we do with our soul, whatever we do with our mind, whatever we do with our works, that spirit is incorruptible. But the things we do, the things we say, the things we think can be corruptible or non-corruptible depending on what, whether they're in this kingdom or in his kingdom. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 23 says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and make your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is interested in our whole being, which is spirit, soul, and body, to be perfected in him by walking in him. Our spirit is already perfect. Because it's the Spirit of Christ. Our spirit is already incorruptible. We have something in us, which is seed, something that no one in the Old Testament ever had. Until the day of Pentecost, it wasn't available to have incorruptible seed because Jesus had not ascended on high and made it possible to be born again of His seed. When He ascended on high, it says that God made Him a life-giving spirit. And from that point on, until now, it's available to confess Jesus as Lord and to have His seed, which is Christ in us, come into us. It's incorruptible. But now, what do we do with the great blessing that is in us? Now, we have the opportunity to make a choice to either walk in Him or to choose to not walk in Him, to not abide or to abide. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Our spirit, we're already saved. In a sense of eternal life, we've already been given that. In the Old Testament, they, they had the hope of eternal life. They had the promise of eternal life. 
We have been given eternal life, and we have the hope of an inheritance. We have the hope of receiving something in that eternal life. What we've been given is priceless. Now what will we do with it? Bury it or invest it? You see, all verses must agree with all other verses. And difficult verses must be interpreted in light of clear verses, not the other way around. We've got to be honest with the interpretation of scriptures. We need to be studious. We need to be laborious. We need to be workmen of the word so that we can be approved before God. Because what we believe from scripture is going to be manifested in our lives as we walk out on those beliefs. Now the transition in 1 John is between chapter 3, verse 3, and chapter 4, beginning in 4.1. So the subject context in 1 John begins with the discussion in the soul category and transitions from soul to spirit in chapter 3, verse 3. Soul continues as the context until chapter 4. Beginning with chapter 4, verse 1, Context subjects alternate between soul and spirit for explanation and elaboration. Again, in chapter 4, verse 20, all the way to the end of the, the book, it's talking about what is begotten of God. We've got to understand part of that book is written about what we do and part of it is written about what God has done in us. So when we look at it in light of in Christ or Christ in, it, then we can divide it clearly. And it doesn't contradict itself at all. Now, let's continue along this light, understanding the difference between what God has done in us, which is eternal, and what we choose to do or choose not to do, which potentially can be eternal, but isn't necessarily eternal if we do the things in the flesh. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4, it says, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good work of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put Him to an open shame. Now that sounds, when you read it, to me, like, it's saying, once we receive the Spirit, and if we fall away, we can't come back. However, we know from other verses of Scripture that that can't be correct, because it says, if we sin, we have a Savior who's faithful and just to forgive us our sins if we'll confess our sins. We have the, the weight of Scripture in light of, for instance, the parable of the uh, forgiving father and the prodigal son went off and, and squandered all his inheritance. But when he came back, the father received him. The other son wasn't any better than the one that left because he was, he was prideful and arrogant and unforgiving of his brother when he came. And yet the father still met him. Told him, hey, I've got great things. You can have it at any time. The father was standing in the place of grace towards both of them. Similar to those two men that prayed. The one said, I'm glad I'm not like him. And the other one said, Lord, I need all the help I can get. It's like those two sons. Neither one of those two sons was right. The one thought he was better than the other. And the other knew he needed help. But he was willing to take a place lesser than the son. But the father received them both. 
Well, so we have to look at this in light of the rest of Scripture. And the difficult verse has to be interpreted in light of the clear verses. So when we read here, if they fall away, it's impossible to renew them to repentance. What that verse appears to say is that you can't get forgiveness again once you've received it. Because then we would all be left out in the cold, wouldn't we? Because we've all sinned. We've all fallen away at one time or another after having received the Lord. Now, there's interpretations that say, well, there's a, a limit and once you pass a point. But that's not scriptural. You can't find that in scripture. What you can find is what it says here. So we want to look at this. Because all scripture has to be interpreted in light of the clear verses. And we need to be able to rightly divide between spirit and soul. We need to know what is the author, the Holy Spirit, saying. Now in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 17, I want you to look where it says, Then he adds, Their sins and their lawless deers I will remember no more. Now, where is remission of these? There is no longer an offering for sin. And in chapter 10 also, verse 26, it says, For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Now you could take that, if you take that out of its context, if you sin willfully after you have a knowledge of the truth, there's no sacrifice for your sins. There's no forgiveness of sins you could read into that. That would be bad for all of us, wouldn't it? Because there's very few among us, I would like to say probably none, who have not sinned willfully after they were saved. If that was saying what it appears to say in just that verse, taken out of context, then Christ died for naught. Because there is no salvation for anyone. Unless perhaps you get saved on your deathbed and you passed away very quickly before you had time to sin. Especially when you have the sins at the level of what Jesus said. If you think it, it's a sin. Right? <laughs> you have to look at the context. The context, if you go back even to chapter 9, he's talking specifically to those Christians who are Jews who are still zealous for the law. The name of the book is even Hebrews. In reality, it should be Messianic Jews. <laughs> because these are Hebrews that have accepted Jesus, but they're still living under the Old Covenant. So in chapter 9, you see things like in verse 12, not with the blood of goats and of calves. And in verse 13, and the blood of bulls and of goats. The whole context is talking to people who accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior, saying that, oh, I know I can't get saved without that blood of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. However, once they sin willfully, or once they sin or fall away after having received Jesus as Messiah, they are now going back to the temple and buying goats and having sacrifices of bulls and bullocks according to the Old Covenant. And the writer of Hebrews is trying to point out to them, once you have received the greater sacrifice, which is by the blood of Jesus Christ, you can't, after having fallen away, or after having sinned willfully, go back to a different kind of sacrifice. There is no other sacrifice for you. You can't go back to the old covenant, because His blood covered all sin, even future sin, even willful sin, after you have Christ in you. 
So if you understand it in light of the context, and don't take those difficult verses out of the context, then it's very clear what he's saying. It's impossible for those who were once enlightened, if you fall away, to renew yourself against that repentance, because that repentance is good enough if you do it once. Repentance unto salvation to receive the incorruptible seed can only be done once. And if you fall away, there's no goat, no bull that can take the place of the blood you've already received. You can plead the blood of Jesus that you've already received. Don't go back to the old ways just because you've gone back to your old ways. <laughs> there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins because Jesus accomplished it all on the cross. We can come back to the cross as often as we need to, but there is no other sacrifice besides that one. There is no blood of a bull, a goat, a pigeon, anything. Jesus accomplished it all. John chapter 14, verse 16, And I will pray the Father, and He will give you another helper, that He may abide with you forever. You see, if He could leave you, then He wouldn't be abiding with you forever. When he says, the helper's going to come and abide with you forever, I believe what Jesus said. Once he comes into us, he's not going to leave us. Once we have incorruptible seed, it cannot be corrupted. Now, it can lay dormant. We can neglect it. We can choose to walk away from that lifestyle, but the seed is incorruptible. Verse 17, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Now he was talking to his disciples and his apostles before the day of Pentecost. He says, that spirit who's going to come and be with you forever, he is right now dwelling with you because of their obedience to be walking into things of the Savior. But he's going to be in you, Jesus said. 2 Timothy 2, 12 and 13 says, If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. And if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. So we see the weight of Scripture. And I could read many, many more to you say that even if you fall away from him, he's not going to leave you. I will never leave you nor forsake you, he said. So, we have to look at the weight of the clear scriptures and interpret the unclear scriptures in light of those. And as we see, by being workmen of the word and using that rightly dividing and rightly cutting, the answer's got to be in there. Usually, right in the context, if we'll look for it. Now, let's continue on this. Because he says, He is with you and He will be in you. Now, it says in 1 Peter 1.11, talking about those in the Old Testament, it says, of what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them, it talked about even in the Old Testament. And this is the only place where in Scripture where it talks about in the Old Testament that they had the Spirit in them. Every other place it talks about the Spirit being upon them. Now also in the New Testament at times, it talks about the Spirit being upon us, but more often it talks about it being in us. And I want you to understand a principle here. That we have the Spirit in us. In other words, in a physical sense, the Spirit comes in us, 
And that can be even including when the Spirit's upon us. In other words, in the Old Testament, when it talked about the Spirit came upon someone, in a physical sense, the Spirit did come into them. But it's a figure, when it says in you, is speaking about a permanence in the New Testament. In other words, it's in us to stay. Whereas the Spirit upon can leave. For instance, it left Saul in the Old Testament, King Saul. It left uh, Samson. The Spirit upon him left. Now, it came into him in order to function, but it was called upon because it was for ministry. Now, when it comes within us, in the, in the New Testament, it's talking about in an eternal sense. It's talking about our sonship. The Spirit comes upon us for service, but it comes within us for sonship. 1 Peter 1.7 says that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested, which is the word approved. Same as when we're approved of God. Dokimazo. That when our faith is tested by fire, it may be found to praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 9. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder. I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which has been laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it. Because it will be tested by fire, and the fire will test, it will try, it will approve, it will prove each one's work, what sort it is. If anyone's work, which he has built on it, endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as through fire. Our salvation is sure. It cannot be taken away. If we invest in his kingdom, then our works also will be treasures in heaven. Amen.